It's always weird using a microphone, so forgive me. I'm used to music stand and just talking to people. It's my norm. My name's Neil Grogan, and uh, good morning. Um, I'm the children's director here at Grace Bible Church, so I have the honor and privilege of working with all of your kids who are all here today, week in and week out. And let me tell you, it's just it's so amazing to see faces bright up when they hear and understand the gospel for the very first time. And um, the fact that you trust me with your, uh, your children to get to experience that week in and week out, I mean, it's, it's truly breathtaking and humbling. Um, another ministry that I help lead <coughs> is a veteran and active duty type ministry. It's called The Valley, and it's for guys who are struggling with the spiritual wounds of war. Um, I was in the Marine Corps and in infantry, and this is part of my story and my walk uh, of what I've endured and continue to endure. So uh, we have this, this ministry where we just lean in on each other and we... And we draw near to God's grace together. That is the sermon title of our talk today. And it is a key teaching and theme that we try to press into our guys every week. Either through prayer or accountability, we try to draw near to God's grace together as a unit that we were so familiar with at one time for us vets who are no longer active. The question that I hope to answer today from the text we're going to read in Hebrews is how can we experience mercy and grace when God seems so far away? Anyone had a hard year? This year was really difficult for me uh, and ended really difficult uh, with, my, with my son Titus. But, you know, this, this theme has just been coming back around in my life of drawing near to God's grace and experiencing His promises that He's so faithful to give us. You know, the concept of drawing near to God's grace sounds really sweet and wonderful, but the truth of the matter is, more times than not, God's grace is on full display in the midst of our suffering. Not our comfort or ease, but in the hard times in life. Where we want to throw our hands up is when we see God the most, at least in my experience, in many of the biblical authors uh, that we find in the Bible, there's, the Bible's just riddled with stories and prayers and songs of God. I know you're there, but where are you? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I, I hope to answer that question for you. This, this idea of drawing near to God's grace has never been more apparent to me than in the last few months. Uh, many of you know, and have been praying for the Perry family. Um, John Perry was killed in Afghanistan in November, and Julianne and her kids are a part of my wife and my, uh, my small group. And so, because of that, I was in, I was informed shortly after, a few hours after she was, once the call got put out. Um, and my wife and I were kind of called on to coordinate the care for their family to make sure meals were getting sent and that everyone had a point of contact, right? And I'm, I just want to say I'm so proud of all of our small groups and our church family who have just come be- beside her and their family and just loved on them in this time. Because if you get news like that, 
I mean, devastation sinks deep into your heart. That's the reality of it. And, and it did in Julianne. And I knew that the first order of business in caring for this family was to call her and to pray, right? To draw near to his grace. And I picked up the phone, and right before I called her, I looked at the phone, and I, I just, there are no words that can express, right? Like, what am I going to say? I'm not equipped for this. <laughs> Good grief. And this text, it just rang into my ears that we can draw near to the throne room of grace and find mercy in time of need. That God is faithful to give it to us, not withhold it from us. So that's what we did. I called Julianne and we prayed. We asked for God to shower her and their kids with grace and mercy that they would know that he was present in their lives and that he loves them. And when we said amen, Julianne asked me a question that I thought was really peculiar. She made a request. It was strange when I first uh, processed it. She asked if my wife Brittany could take her and her kids to church the next day. For Sunday morning service. I don't know if I'd have the same response. If my wife passed. Julianne taught me something. Very great that day. And that is. When we don't know. Anything else to do. When life doesn't make sense. When we're just beaten down. So hard. That there's nothing else to do but to draw near to God in that moment. Because that's the only thing that can make sense in our lives as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So before we get rolling, I just want to remind us of this idea that we can find rest in our suffering by drawing near to Jesus, our ultimate source of grace. Please bow with me. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I just thank you for being who you say you are. Everything you've promised us, you've made good on, and you continue to do so. You are a personal God who feels what we feel and love us. You shower us with more grace and mercy than we could ever imagine or ask for. You are so good and so loving. And you are truly passionate about your children, and I thank you for that. I pray that we would all leave this place today with a truth that you are who you say you are and that you withhold nothing from your children. And if we draw near to you in those moments, that you are faithful to show up. God, we thank you for today. And I ask that uh, my words would glorify you, may be worthy of you, and that um, your word would be proclaimed. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. The text we're going to be working from today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, if you want to open there. In the black Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1003. 1003, Hebrews 4, chapter, or Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Make sure I get there. (laughs) 
the writer of Hebrews addresses the need to find rest in God in the midst of suffering here in this text. And I'll, I'll read it for us. It's on the screen here as well. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author exhorts to his listeners that we can find rest and joy in the midst of our hardship or our struggle, our suffering, by drawing near to God in those moments. The writer expresses, expresses to us three pivotal understandings and, uh, about Jesus that we are to have as believers and something to do. What are we drawing near to? Well, we're drawing near to Jesus' unique greatness. His greatness. He is uniquely great. We draw near to His humanity because Jesus is personal. And we draw near to His grace because Jesus is our ultimate source of grace. Rather than trying to hide because of our sins or our suffering, the author shows how we should draw near to Jesus, our sympathetic high priest who gives us access to this great throne room. For those who are in Christ, that throne is not a place of fear, but rather a throne of grace. And if we are to have confidence when we draw near to the throne room of grace, we must understand the unique greatness of Jesus as high, high priest. We're to draw near to his greatness there's this unique adjective used here in verse 14 describing Jesus' priesthood. And I'll read it for us, for us. It says, since then we have a great high priest. Everyone say great. We have a great high priest who has, been, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to this confession. The word great, this word signifies an important distinction that separates Jesus from all of, all of the other high priests. That makes him unique. Why is he unique? Because he's not only high priest, is he? Jesus is also king. He's the king of kings. All things were made for him, by him, and through him, right? He is preeminent. He is our king of kings. He is also our prophet. He is the mediator between us and God. And he is our great high priest. Something very different because as we look at the greatness of these men, these great prophets in the Bible, these great kings in the Bible, and these great priests in Scripture, they're all one-sided. I was talking to my brother-in-law the other day about basketball, and we were talking about one player particularly. His name is James Harden. plays for the Houston Rockets. I'm a diehard Mavs fan, so we don't really like him. And we were talking about how great of a guy, how great of a basketball player this guy is. I mean, yesterday he put up like 50 points, 15 rebounds, and like 15 assists, which has never been done, apparently. 
and in the history of the NBA. And uh, we were talking about, man, this guy, he's, he's really one-sided. He's a great offensive player, but he can't play defense, worth a crud. And, and that's kind of our situation as we see the greatness of men, is that we're one-sided. Even if everything we have is going for us on, in one place, it's still not enough to carry these other things. And this is who our Savior is. Jesus is this full picture of what humanity should be. He is our great high priest. It's very important to recognize as the realization of the priestly order of Aaron, all the other high priests are unable to ensure the atonement for all of the sins of man. Leviticus 16 gives us kind of a picture of what one of the duties of a high priest was. And that, that is that on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the temple and he'd enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would take the blood from the sacrificed lambs and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And the crowd would wait outside the temple with great expectation and angst because if he didn't come back, then they were not forgiven. But if he came back, their sins had been forgiven for another year. And they would wait outside And when they saw him, they would sigh. (sighs) Because they knew that their sins had been atoned for another year. But y'all, there's something important to note here. And that is a year is short of an eternity. Is it not? Year in and year out, they have to do the same thing to secure their forgiveness. But in Jesus, our great high priest, he is sufficient to secure our forgiveness over the course of of our lives, past, present, and all the cruddy stuff you're going to do in the future. Try not to say crap. (laughs) Sorry, Dave. (laughs) Whether a high priest or us as individuals, we maintain our inability because of our weaknesses. If the high priest enters the Holy of Holies improperly or at the wrong time, he will be killed from being in the presence of God in the wrong way. He dies instantly because of his own weaknesses. And it reminds us that we will always fall short when we try to save ourselves and try to save others. We don't have what it takes. And that's okay. Because we have a God who has what it takes. Who does it for us. But still, we seem to continue to try and attain our own salvation, don't we? Whether we're in this low spot of our lives, where we're frustrated, where we want to throw our hands up, or we say, you know what, I'm going to fix myself. I mean, we do it every year. It's New Year's, right? It's the first day of 2017, and many of us are already getting ready to get a gym membership. That will last about a month because we're, we've eaten too much in the holidays and we're overweight. Look at me. But I know that I don't have what it takes to stay in the gym. But many of us have this false notion that we can just fix ourselves at every aspect of our lives. You can't save yourself. And when we hit those high parts of our lives where everything's going well for us, we're happy. It's, many of you might be uh, newly engaged because that's a popular thing to do for the new year, apparently. 
Facebook, which just blew up last night. And you say, look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've secured for myself. And pride swells up into your heart. And you still miss the point. We keep trying to attain something that we can't do, that we're, in, we're unable to do. Jesus is our great high priest. 14 says something really amazing. I got to point it out because that's what we do here. He is a great high priest who passed through the heavens. When we look at other high priests, these high priests, they go into the Holy of Holies, right? Into the presence of God. But Jesus passes through the heavens into the very presence of God. That is how unique this high priest is. That we have. How was that possible? How could Jesus do such, accomplish such a feat? The text tells us here because he's the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. That's who he is. What does that mean for us? It means that God in the flesh came to this broken earth. To do what not even the greatest of men could do. And to accomplish what none of us could do for ourselves. God himself entered in in the incarnation that we just celebrated the past month. To be what we could not be. He died for our sins. He atoned for our debt. And he passed through the heavens into the very presence of God in his ascension. And is an advocate for us. The author calls us to hold fast to this confession. This truth. The confession of the priesthood of Jesus. And it is through faith that we can tap into this greatness. The greatness of our Lord. When you read the book of Hebrews. One thing that will become evident to you. Is that the listeners of this sermon of exhortation are being greatly persecuted. They're being slaughtered because of their belief in Jesus. But the author, he calls them not to run away or hide, but he calls them to perseverance. He doesn't call them to apathy or abandonment of the, the trial. And we are called to the same perseverance by the confession that we hold, the confession of the gospel that is the truth of our lives and the truth of this world, of all creation. That's what we hold fast to. This is the confession that calls us to perseverance, that takes us to the place we can't get on our own. We can tap into the greatness of Jesus, and our faith is in what he has done. Our faith is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The great high priest that is truly unique and is elevated to a height that is unimaginable. The writer wants us to understand that Jesus is uniquely great. He's the high priest that no man other than the Son of God could be. This greatness, however, can make Jesus seem out of touch and out of reach. He is so great that we might lose sight of his personhood, of his humanity. So the author, he takes us out of the clouds of who God is and brings us to the ground and reminds us that 
even in Jesus' greatness, he can still fully identify with us. This is important for us to understand because when we suffer and we look for him, we say, oh, you, you don't understand what I'm going through because you're so great. And we're afraid of asking for forgiveness or we beat ourselves up like we're not worthy of it. We have a Savior who wants to forgive us. We're here. We are to draw near to His humanity. You know, when I was growing up, I did a lot of stupid stuff. Anyone else? A lot. My dad's here. And he probably put two hands, point at me. Yeah, I, I'm a very passionate person. Uh, I love hard. I get mad easy. Or I did. We'll put it in the past tense. And I let, I let my emotions dictate my actions. And I did this all until about a week ago. I've repented <laughs> and turned. Um, but like any good father would do, he swiftly held me accountable for those stupid emotion-filled actions that led me to a lot of trouble. And I had this idea about my dad, and, and I hear it a lot from other teenagers and uh, other children, and that's that my parents can't understand me, right? I thought, my dad, he can't understand me. How could he? He's never gone through what, I've, what I'm going through. He can't relate to me. Sorry, my thing's all dragging me. He can't relate to me. And I believe this for, I mean, goodness, I was probably about 16 where I had this, under, this new thing happen and my eyes were open. And that's when I went to my grandma's house. Shortly after my granddad died, uh, we all went out um, to his mom's house in Amarillo area. And she was feeling reminiscent And she pulled out this box of memories that she had. And she opened it up and she started rummaging through the papers. And she pulls out this old report card of my dad's. And she shows it to me. And the teacher had written something in the margin. And and I was shocked at what I read. But what it said was, Michael Grogan is a great student. But he's really sensitive. (laughs) Apparently... I wasn't the only one who was passionate or overly emotional. My dad dealt with the same tendencies and experiences that I was dealing with. He wasn't out of touch and out of reach. And the author of our text gives a similar account about Christ. Yes, Jesus is great and glorious. He is preeminent and elevated high. But in verse 15, the author reminds us that we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is personal. He shares in our feeling. He's compassionate over our weaknesses and still remains uniquely great. I think there's this, there's this well, I know, there's a story in John chapter 11, I think that illustrates this best for us about Jesus' humanity. And that's in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. What we see there is the Jesus and his disciples are told that Lazarus has come down with something. He's greatly ill. 
and they're encouraged to go to him because I don't know if you've read much of the Gospels, but you get around Jesus and you're healed some kind of way. He touches his shirt and boom, life change. And so they're encouraging Jesus to go and see your best friend, the guy that you call friend. And Jesus doesn't go immediately. And I, and I think it's probably because he's waiting for the right time. I think we can assume that. He's waiting for the perfect time, at the greatest time of need, to show up like God is so faithful to do. And when Jesus goes out to Bethany, where Lazarus has been buried, he's died, um, he runs into Martha, Lazarus' sister. And she says to him, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know who you are, right? I know that you're God. And if you ask God anything, he'll do it for you. Because that's what she believed. And, and Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha says something funny. She's like, yeah, I know he'll rise again on the last day. She didn't realize where she was in the present, in the very presence of God. She was as close as you can get to his grace in that moment. And Jesus reminds her who he is. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks Martha, do you believe this? And she's probably on her back saying, yes, Lord. She says, yes, Lord, but I can't read into it maybe a little bit. And then he runs into Mary, Lazarus' other sister, and she says a similar thing. She says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would be alive. And she's weeping. She's mourning over the loss of her brother. And all the other Jews are, that are surrounding her doing the same thing. They're mourning. There's a mourning process party probably and they're weeping over the loss of this great man that they all love and Jesus in the shortest verse in the Bible verse 35 says he he wept Jesus wept but I think 36 shows us really whose humanity is it says that the Jews saw him and said look see how he loved him See how Jesus loved Lazarus and had a physical response of the loss of a friend, even though Jesus knows very well what he's capable of and what he's about to do. And he resurrected Lazarus shortly later. Jesus shows us his humanity by being personal. Brooke Westcott, a 19th century theologian, observed that the sympathy of Christ, the exalted high priest, is not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from without, but the feeling of one who enters into suffering and makes it his own. He sees you and I. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. He's been tempted as we are tempted and remains perfect still. Think about that. When we suffer, Jesus looks at us and our experiences in that moment, and he loves you. He takes it on to himself. 
And he suffers alongside you. Man. And he still remained perfect. Still remained perfect. He tells us in Matthew 5.17 that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he did that. He remained perfect so that he could be the sacrifice that we needed. That he could do what not the greatest of men could do. That we can still not do for ourselves. He went to the cross and he died for us. He remained personal in his perfection. And his ability to sympathize and help us is a result to his likeness to us. Jesus' sufferings equipped him to be able to support his people in our suffering and our temptations. He's not only uniquely, a uniquely great Savior, but a personal Savior that fully identifies with us. Knowing now that we have this unique great high priest who is personal because of his own sufferings and experiences, we can now in confidence draw near to Christ in faith who is our ultimate source of grace. Where do you draw near to his grace? And verse 16 clues us in on this simple understanding that we as Christians should have, that we're to draw near to the throne room of grace. It's an encouragement of prayer. That's how we draw near. It's through prayer. So earlier in the passage, he calls us to perseverance by holding fast to the gospel truth. But it's difficult to persevere at times when everything's going wrong, right? When you're being persecuted like these people in the scriptures. When your husband's died because of an act of evil. When your kid's in the hospital for days and you're running on no sleep. That's me. We can draw near through prayer. We can ask God to give us what He's so faithful to always provide. And that's grace. 1 John 5.14 tells us that this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. He hears you. He hears your prayers. And verse 16 of this text tells us, let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence. Why can we have confidence? We can have confidence because Jesus is that personal Savior that we have. We, he can sympathize with us because he shares in our sufferings and our experiences. It reminds me of this ministry we have here at Grace Bible Church. It's called Reunite. Anyone heard of it? Pretty amazing. It's led by Adam and Laura Brown. And it's a a marriage ministry that gives us kind of a biblical view of marriage and teaches us what God calls us to. And not only that, they help you not kill your spouse. That's really helpful in marriage. And Brittany and I have been several times. And she forgives me every time. Um, but, you know, we keep going back, and, and many of, of you have been there, keep going back, because if you, when you hear their testimony, you realize that Adam and Laura did everything wrong at the beginning of their marriage. Literally everything. 
And because of that, we find rest in showing up and saying, yeah, I'll listen to you because you understand what I'm going through. Because obviously you've been through it. You've had the same temptations that I have. You have the same struggles. Your marriage almost fell apart the same way. I can in confidence come to you and know that you're able to sympathize. And that's the type of Savior that we have. We can have confidence when we draw near to the throne room of grace. The throne room of grace is a very strange statement if you were living in the ancient world. You'd hear this and you'd be perplexed. What is a throne room of grace? Because a throne room at this time of the world was viewed as a place of sovereign judgment. Not a place of mercy. Maybe if you're lucky. But if you came into the throne room uninvited or with trivial matters, you'd be put to death. Instantly. Done. But the author here, he calls it a throne room of grace, not judgment. He makes it clear that Christ makes us welcome to this throne. That we're not only welcomed, but the author tells us that we can have a supreme confidence that Jesus is faithful to pour grace onto our heads and not judgment when we approach Him. You know, throughout my life, there's been times where I've asked God, Lord, when can I approach You? When's it okay to ask for Your help? And the answer that's given here in the text, it screams at us at our time of need. And y'all, we always need. There's never a moment in our lives where we can step back and say, I don't need you, Jesus. He is a God who sees you and is passionate about you and your weaknesses. And he loves you in such a way that will change your life. We're welcomed. We're encouraged by our Lord to come to him when we need But here in the midst of our sufferings, over the course of our lives, we have confidence that Jesus is here and that He can sympathize. He's not here to place hot coals of judgment on your head, but to be a spring of grace that overflows our cups and fills our hearts. When the weight of the world is bearing down on our souls, He withholds nothing from His children, but gives with a glad heart. That's what the text tells us. That's how your God loves you and is passionate about you. He's passionate about you to see you where you are, to not let you sit, but to come at the right time, at the perfect time, and to give you that mercy that you're so desperate for. And if the time The right time isn't good enough for you. We're encouraged to come to him in prayer. To draw near in prayer. And experience his grace by asking him. The will of God is perfect for our lives. And he is faithful in the perfect time of our need to provide mercy. And when we come in confidence to this great throne room of grace. Jesus is faithful to give us our need. In 2011, I was deployed to Sang in Afghanistan with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. And uh, this place uh, sucked, quite frankly. It was uh, a minefield. 
and we were in firefights almost every day. And there was never a moment where I felt kind of safe, where I could catch a breath. It was high pace and nonstop. And uh, one day, well, we, we had sustained uh, many losses, so we we're very undermanned. So we we're having to do more patrols to keep that 24-hour presence up. And one day, we were on a night operation, and we got called. We had to do a patrol the following day, so we didn't get to come home until late afternoon. And um, we had run out of water, most of us, because, surprise, more work. So, um, as many of you are aware of, because you've been there, or if you don't have a clue, I'll fill you in. In summertime, Afghanistan's pretty hot. It's like 130 degrees, and it feels like 1,000 degrees, which is probably scientific if in some book somewhere. It's hot as crud. <laughs> I can recall it and feel it in this moment. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was drained physically. I was out of water, and it was hot. And I'm feeling heat exhaustion start to come in in my body, you know, get those cramps. And, and some of the, our other guys were feeling the same way and kind of getting dizzy. And this is not an environment to have that situation happen whatsoever. You got to be able to walk in the steps of the guy in front of you because if you step outside, you'll step on a bomb. And so when you're wobbly... It's not very safe. And, man, this old Afghan man, he saw us on this patrol. And he he came over, and he kind of ushered for us to follow him. And I don't know why, but we we just kind of took him up on it and walked over there. And he showed us this, this little field, this little patch of melons that he had. And he he gave us a melon. And man, I took that melon, I whipped out my K-bar knife, and I stabbed it and cranked it open and ripped out a piece of this melon and, you know, issued it out to other guys. I wasn't selfish. And man, I bit into this melon, and let me tell you, there's not a better uh, melon on the face of the planet. (laughs) Seriously. But I'm reminded by this humble old man of the kind of God that we serve the kind of God that loves us. He sees when we're wobbly and when we're about to pass out. And he ushers us over to give us just what we need to get us home. That's the kind of God that loves us. Jesus is a great high priest who accomplished everything man could not. He remains personal and he feels what we feel and loves us enough to give us the grace we need when we approach Him or when we can't go on any longer. And I want to challenge you all today to hold fast to your confession of the Gospel and persevere over your sufferings. That will come in 2017. Hardship will come. But it's through the Gospel that we can persevere. That's our foundation. And we got to keep going back to it and keep telling ourselves truth. And i got to ask you, what's your prayer life like? As you go into this new year, do you have a prayerful heart? Are you going to the Lord 
and drawing near to His grace. He wants to give it to you. He wants to shower shower your heads with it. You got to ask. Because it's through our faith in Christ that we can draw near and taste the grace that only Jesus can give and find rest. Let's pray. Father God, I just, just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're not a God who withholds a thing from your children, but pours it out on us even when we don't ask. I ask that you would make this message resonate with your people that, you're, that we're called to come to you and to experience you and to know your truth, that we can persevere over our trials and that we can draw near to your grace at any time. Amen.